black from dust but still alive and red in the center. It reminded me of Haji Murad. It makes me want to write. It asserts life to the end and alone in the midst of the whole field, somehow or other, had asserted it. Leo Tolstoy. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank you all for joining me this week. Um, I really appreciate you coming out. Uh, uh, January is done. We've moved on to February and still um, getting pretty good download numbers despite me not having put out an episode this month so far. So uh, glad to see that the, the episodes are continuing to do strong into the week. Um, I do want to also apologize. Last week I forgot to edit the clap sync that I put in at the start of the episodes. I'm going to try to make sure to do that um, again, just in case. Uh, yeah, or not do that again, I should say. Excuse me. I'm going to try to, yeah, keep clearing that out as I normally do, but I just, I completely forgot last time. So I do apologize for that. And it wasn't until after I had already set everything up to um, render and uh, publish that I noticed it. So, um, Also, I did put up some pictures of Proso and Foxtel Millet uh, on the Twitter account where I um, weekly I kind of put the, post the links, usually on Wednesdays, um, to, this week, to the current week's episode. And uh, I try to remember to attach pictures and stuff, and uh, this week I actually remembered to... Um, placed photographs of uh, the, the difference between Peroso Millet and Foxtel Millet. And it is very noticeable um, once you actually look at them. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of everything I have. Um, we should finish up East Asian uh, domesticates today and Southeast Asian domesticates today. Uh, and then next week we'll move on to uh, Europe... And I think there's one or two in North America. And then we'll move on to South America. Not um, not to kind of, you know, give less uh, focus on Europe or North America, but neither of them has crops. Or excuse me, um, Europe, sorry, um, Europe has some crops that are domesticated there, but that's usually not till later, and, um, yeah, at this point, there's only, there's still a limited number of, uh, domesticates arising in Europe, uh, in terms of plants, uh, at least this season. There's some other stuff that'll come around later, but as far as I could tell, there's only one crop that could kind of be placed in the domestication sphere in Europe, um, this season, so. Um, yeah, so next week we'll have, like, again, I think one crop in Europe, and then, um, we'll move on to North America, and depending on how long that takes, we might move on to, uh, South America too, uh, at least two episodes for the Americas, uh, is what I'm thinking right now, and then we'll move on to plants, and then, uh, we'll do some more of the kind of scene setting for the current season, um, and then, of course, we will delve back into history and progression and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, anyway, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, to do that, we're going to start with uh, bananas, uh, the, the fruit uh, that I know many of us are very familiar with. 
Um, now, the word banana came into English from either Portuguese or Spanish. It's debated which of the two. Um, where they adopted the word from is not known. And I mean the they when I say Portuguese and Spanish. Where they got it from we don't know 100%. But most sources I've been able to read say that they probably adopted it from uh, the Wolof language. Uh, and a word, uh, ban, uh, excuse me, banana is the word that they would have adapted uh, from Wolof. Now, there is a debate about this word. Uh, it could be the word that their ancestors developed, the Wolof ancestors, and they inherited for, um, that word for both the plant and its fruit. Uh, there are people who claim that they got the word from the Arabic word banan, which means fingertip. That said, the first banana was not domesticated by any of these people. Uh, in any of those places. Uh, from what we can determine from current genetic evidence, the first domesticated bananas emerged somewhere between 8,000 and 5,000 BCE. Uh, and archaeological evidence suggests that this happened somewhere in what is now Papua New Guinea, in a place known as the Cook Valley or Cook Swamp. Now, I think it, that is K-U-K if you'd like to Google it. It is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Now, uh, I think I brought up before when talking about uh, New Guinea, but uh, it has over 800 languages on the island, so determining what the original name was is not really possible. But some words used by natives there today are Po, Potera, Mudu, and Muku. And it is the last two whose name spread west uh, who, um, with the plant, where by the time it reached the Arabs, it was called maz, uh, the fruit of which would have formerly been called uh, banan al-maz, or the maz finger, or the finger of the maz. Maz was the base for the Greek term, and the Romans got their word musa, from them. Musa is the genus for bananas and plantain uh, plants and trees. So um, that also ties into, you know, um, if the Wolof people did adopt the Arabic term, uh, they would have heard um, banan uh, almoaz and just shortened it to banan. Again, all that is very highly debated. Uh, now, there are between 80 and 90 different um, musa plants that produce either bananas or plantains. Uh, and in most places in the world, they don't really distinguish between the two fruits. Um, at least, you know, at like a individual level, like, you know, buying them from uh, shops or traders or what have you. Um, now, the first domesticated the domesticated bananas uh, were probably not the most appealing thing in the world to eat. Um, they're fairly dry for fruit, uh, and they would be packed uh, with extremely large, hard seeds. And um, the plants that were domesticated, uh, that the you know um, that we get closer to what we expect for modern bananas, um, were 
you know, you still have their wild, wild ancestor thing about um, things like the Musa Balbasiana, uh, which you can Google pictures of. Uh, you, It's green mostly, and you cut it open, and it's just packed with all these kind of like uh, yellowish clear seeds. Um, there are some others that have, you know, larger kind of black seeds that are kind of spread throughout. Now, over time and with crossbreeding, you know, various wild strains, they were able to make uh, plants that were producing much smaller seeds. And eventually, uh, this is much further down the line, they were able to make hybrids that produce no seeds at all in their fruit. Uh, And I'm not going to go into detail on this because it's more of a biological, you know, topic. But if you're interested, you can read how these hybrids um, are spread uh, via their tree suckers. Because again, the um, the fruits of the banana tree, typically, if they don't have seeds, they can't reproduce. So how do you make more trees? Um, they kind of use like a, I think it's a grafting method is from what I was able to tell. But again, if you're interested in that, I highly recommend looking it up. Um now, bananas travel better than a lot of fruits, uh, as you might imagine. And as you pick them, um, you can pick them when they're still, uh, you know, not necessarily the ripest you'd like. You can then uh, carry them and they'll slowly age, and this helps the plant spread. Um, and even if you leave them too long without, you know, eating them, uh, you can still kind of use them for cooking. Uh, and prepare them to kind of uh, maybe counteract some of the um, going bad effects of it, I guess. So they're a great food for longer journeys, and that's going to help them spread at several periods. Uh, Now, I mentioned that the first domestication took place on Papua New Guinea, but uh, several different wild musa plants uh, grow throughout all of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, I think parts of kind of like the northern Australia coast, as well as places in, um, I think, the the kind of the sub-tropical parts of uh, India, uh, like towards the, um, the north uh, east and the, the far south. So, all these places have these wild plants that you know you could domesticate strains of bananas from, um, and these wild strains would be interbred with domesticated strains at various points to create new varieties uh, as well. But there are also cases where some domesticated strains grew out of um, control. Maybe the seeds got left behind. Um, maybe, you know, um, someone planted the new trees and then left and then never came back. And, you know, the, the domesticated strains became wild again. And then later, other humans came around, took control of the plants, and then re-domesticated them. And from what we can tell, genetically speaking, uh, that this probably happened at several places and at a few different times. Uh, though there are di- disagreements on the kind of exact timing of some of these events. Uh, there's a debate on when the crop reached Africa and the northwestern portion 
of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, in some cases, those disagreements, you know, they there's a discrepancy of you know thousands of years in certain situations. Um, I couldn't get enough information to really give a definitive opinion on one way or the other. Uh, I do think you know probably not thousands of years in India's case. I think the older dates are probably more accurate. Uh, bananas are you know a fairly important fruit uh, there, uh, and it's also they have also got like a very strong religious connotation for some of their gods. So uh, probably we've been in India a lot longer, I think, even than the um, than the archaeology might suggest. Uh, in Africa, though, I, I don't know if the older dates, you know, were like two or three thousand years. 4,000 years. Some of those might be a little extreme. Um, I do think it's been in Africa longer than like the commonly accepted like um, 600 AD. I think they've probably been there a little bit longer than that. Uh, but also, I think um, now I know that Africa has incente plants, uh, which look extremely similar to a lot of plantains. They're also they are called false bananas, and yeah, I think they were considered plantains and bananas until like the 1940s. So um, even if bananas themselves didn't reach Africa until much later, various groups in Africa have been growing those incente plants uh, for quite a while. Uh, and um, in fact, I think I mentioned them in the African agricultural episode. Um, where they may be even being started domestication at this point in time, and then, you know, definitely in next season. So, make of that what you will. Um, yeah, so, um, the trees on the, uh, for the, uh, um, excuse me, for bananas are, they have kind of a wide range in terms of sizing, um, they can grow as high as uh, 30 feet uh, for some varieties, and then there are those that can double that. They can get up to uh, 60 feet, uh, and that's uh, 9 meters or 18 meters, depending on if you use metric system or not. And again, the species vary wildly in terms of heights, um, but as far as I can see, there was nothing that gets that grows smaller uh than 9 meters and nothing that grows taller than 18 meters. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, kind of all we can say about the bananas for right now. Uh, obviously, we're all familiar with the Cavendish banana. Those are the yellow ones. That's what most of us here in America would think of when we think of bananas. Uh, but there are plenty of other varieties uh, as well. The next crops we're going to discuss uh, were all domesticated around somewhere between 6, 000, or 7,000 and 6,000 BCE. And this happens in various parts of East Asia. Um, the first of these we're going to talk about is the water chestnut or the Chinese water chestnut. Uh, now the name for this is a combination of uh, water, which comes from the Old English, water, uh, from the Proto-Germanic water, also um, possibly uh, an old Saxon word, watar, um, 
which is all from the, um, like, it's the, I think it's the old High Germanic Wazara, um, which is from Proto-Indo-European, Wad or, uh, and, uh, also, so you combine water with chestnut, which comes into uh, English. Uh, originally, it was Middle English, chestine, uh, from the Old French chastain, uh, which is itself from the Latin castania, uh, and that came from the Greek castanea. Uh, in Chinese, they're called either bg or mati. Uh, mati is a slightly older word, uh, or excuse me, a slightly newer word. Uh, word and it basically like horse hooves. Uh, that's kind of what they call the um, uh, not the fruit, but the vegetable, the the crumb of the of the plant. Uh, but the older word for it in Chinese is bati, and I believe that specifically refers to the plant. Uh, it's not a nickname. That's what it actually is called. Um, yeah, but. Uh, in, in English or a lot of European places, you'll see it referred to as uh, Chinese water chestnuts or just water chestnuts. Um, now, that being said, they're not actually nuts. They are vegetables, uh, and they're grown in patties like rice. Um, they're popular in a lot of East Asian cuisine uh, in a, several countries um, because they mix very well with a lot of different ingredients. They they do have a nutty flavor despite not being nuts. Also, I believe if you um if you let them kind of over ripen, um they will um they will have like a sweeter flavor. Um the longer you you let them you I guess you you let them age uh, essentially. Um, I know, I think a lot of, um, places in southern China, like Cantonese cooking, they'll be added to meatballs, um, you have them in Thai, uh, where they're actually used, I think, as kind of a dessert. They have one of the sweeter varieties that they use. Um, so, a lot of different uses for these plants. Uh, and part of the reason I included them, despite them not being necessarily the most uh, important crop in um, at least American cuisine or even European cuisine, they are extremely popular pretty much worldwide. I think there are places in Africa where they were transported to. Um, a lot of places in Oceania. Um uh, use uh use similar uh plants um so it's an extremely important crop even if we're not aware of it as much here uh in uh north america south america or western europe uh next we're gonna move on to um a plant that's not really necessarily a food stuff uh, at least nearly it's not as a as important for a foodstuff variety as the other stuff we've been talking about. Uh, and that is perilla uh, or perilla. Now, the, for the life of me, I could not get a definitive answer on where uh, perilla comes from, at least in terms of like um, the etymology. Um, <clears throat> there are those that link it with um, uh, parilla, which is uh, or a uh, a combination of um, uh, 
I think little vine, uh, para, like grapevine. Uh, it's like a diminutive of that. Uh, other places say that it comes from a word in Spanish that means knob. Uh, or it might be a diminutive of para, which is pear. Um, but then I think Webster's uh, actually had that it was um, that the taxonomy, uh, taxonym, the, the scientific name, um, originally came from uh, Ovid, uh, the, the poet. Um, he addressed some of his works to uh, a perilla uh, there, and whether that was a real name or a pseudonym, no one really knows. But uh, Ovid, you know, a lot of his poetry has to do with, um, uh, well, not necessarily have to do with it, but a lot of it features different uh, plants, flowers, trees, that kind of thing. So, could not get a definitive name or a breakdown of the name, uh, at least in English. Now, in Chinese, uh, it's called Zisu, uh, and this is... Um, one of the big, like, traditional Chinese medicine herbs. Uh, now, uh, there are many varieties of perilla. Uh, some of them are still wild and basically considered weeds. But, you know, kind of the diversity of perilla makes it very, um, you know, very useful. Inter uh, you know, uh, very widespread. Uh, and there are... Different varieties that are pervasive are are endemic to a couple of different locations. So it's kind of spread out through a lot of different Asia, a lot of different parts of Asia. Asia, excuse me. Um, now, um, again, I, I mentioned it was a herb. Uh, it is related to, I think, mint. I think technically it's a mint, um, though I. It, not quite as refreshing uh, as um, what we're familiar with with uh, when it comes to uh, taste, when it comes to mint. Um, and I mentioned it was used in uh, medicine. Uh, it is, it is, but it can also, its seeds can be used to make uh, kind of an oil, a vegetable oil. Uh, and that has a kind of its own distinct taste. Uh, and I think it's used a lot in Korean cuisine, uh, the oil is. And they also use it in uh, Japanese and Vietnamese um, cooking. Uh, it's very, fairly well widespread, uh, mostly in East Asia because, again, of the traditional uses of medicine. But uh, it has been used uh, outside, uh, at least more recently. Um, so, yeah, fairly important crop. Um, again, not necessarily grown for its just as a food source it's used more for its byproducts uh, than anything else at least these days it's it's more of a garnish or an additive as opposed to like a true uh, food source but again the reason I'm including it uh, is because it is something that you know doesn't necessarily fall into uh, our regular concept of crops being domesticated in in the West here uh, but it also shows that they are um, that people that are um, growing it, they're growing it for a reason, despite the fact that it is very similar to a weed. Uh, they're putting time and effort, resources into growing this crop that is not 
again, it's not something that you can eat and live off of in and of itself. It has to be uh, added to other things. So they're they're beginning to branch out. This is a sign, again, of that kind of secondary products revolution. Uh, and it's showing that it is, it is spreading to other places aside from just uh, Mesopotamia. So again, part of the reason I included it here in this episode. Uh, now next we have um, uh, Arct- uh, Arctium, or also burdock, as another term for it. Uh, the quote that I included at the start of this episode uh, from Tolstoy, he is talking about a variety of burdock that you would find in uh, Russia, and uh, burdock, Arctium. Various different varieties of it are all native to not only Asia, but Europe as well. There are native varieties uh, in Europe. Uh, they are domesticated in Europe, though that happens again at a later period. Uh, so the earliest domesticated strains are all found uh, in Asia. Um, now, the name for burdock is a combination of uh, burr and dock in English. Um, and dock used to have a couple of different meanings in English. Uh, this one is from the Old English uh, daka, uh, which is from the Proto-Germanic dakon. Uh, and it literally meant like um, a bundle of whatever. Um, usually in this case it meant like weeds. Uh, and burr, of course... Um, comes from a, um, I think it's Scandinavian initially, but essentially it is just like a, it's a prickly seed, like a, a sharp seed, like you've got a burr in your, in your pants or something like that, or stuck in your foot, um, so it's a combination of burr and dock. Uh, the, the Latin name Artium, I think is just, um, it's just the scientific name, I wasn't, able to really kind of come up with why it was named that. But uh, burdock is what you would call it in uh, Old English, I guess. Um, and again, spread all throughout Asia. Um, you don't really eat the, the uh, I guess, the greenage on this. Uh, you eat more of the roots. The tap roots are what, what are important. Um, in fact, uh, it was much more widespread in the past. Um, I mentioned Tolstoy. Uh, but you would find um, tap roots much more um, widespread in European cuisine uh, prior, I think it's to the 1800s. Um, it's kind of fallen out of favor in terms of uh, part of like regular cooking ingredients here uh, in Europe and in the West. Um, but still, again, very important in East Asian cuisine. Um, and I also believe that some of the um, some of the oil and the seeds uh, from the um, from the um, leaves and things like that can be used as a uh, medicine as well. Um, so, it, like uh, like perilla, it is not just a food stuff; it is also a, um, a medicinal plant as well uh, though it has more uses 
than perilla does in terms of food uh you you basically use the things you don't eat you can use for um medicinal purposes although i think if you accidentally eat some parts of the burdock uh, it can uh, lead to like a really bad skin rash if you're not careful um and this is way, way, way down the line, but burdock is kind of the inspiration for Velcro. Uh, kind of the, the the hooks and the little loops. Uh, burdock is the plant that, um, uh, I forget the guy's name, Mestrel, I think it was, uh, is the uh, kind of the inspiration, uh, f- or the guy who was inspired by uh, Velcro. Uh, he He kind of got the inspiration from looking at wild um uh burdock i forget which variety it was but there are a few different ones um and again all spread out all native all over um europe and uh north northern and eastern asia Uh, and it again was being domesticated somewhere towards the end of last season the beginning of this season kind of hard to narrow down uh, and for all these crops, it is hard to get a 100% um, definitive answer on when they were first domesticated and where. Um, part of it is due to research. It's kind of hard to trace this kind of thing. Also, part of it is likely due to the fact that there were probably several different groups all growing it or growing these three varieties of crops at around the same time. Um, who knows, in a couple years they may decide to switch from studying rice to these three, but I I doubt it. Uh, Bigger crops get the, you know, higher level of focus in terms of um, uh, funding and that kind of thing. Uh, But I believe that finishes us up for Asia, uh, at least for this season. Um, Like I said, we'll we'll go over the one or two two crops I could find in uh, North or excuse me in Europe and then we'll move on to the Americas after that um, but yeah thank you all for joining me um, I hope you kind of got my reasonings why I talk about these crops I again I I know that they're probably not something that we would necessarily consider but I just want to kind of go over what things are being grown and why doesn't really matter where they're being grown honestly but if um if you guys have anything i missed um let me know i'm sure that there are some crops that might be kind of in this range someone had asked me about garlic uh that is actually not being domesticated just yet that is something that will begin to happen um next season um although maybe some wild varieties you're starting to see it at the very 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 tail end of this season um but um yeah, no. Garlic uh, garlic won't show up next until ne- until the next season um, when that gets domesticated. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you all for joining me. I hope you have learned something, if nothing else. Uh, if you have any questions, feedback, or otherwise, um, please let me know. You can contact me at waradreppod at gmail.com. You can send me a direct message via Twitter. Uh, my DMs are open there. Uh, again, I also try to post pictures. I may retweet uh, other 
like history or scientist stuff I, I find interesting. You may just see some random funny stuff that I find. Um, you can also comment on any of my YouTube videos. Uh, you can come by my live stream on YouTube. I do stream very regularly. Um, usually during the week. Sometimes not so much on the weekends, but um, that kind of depends if I'm traveling or not. Um, but yeah, any of those places, you're welcome to drop by, leave a comment, send a message, whatever have, whatever you'd like. So, uh, yeah, thank you all for joining me. I hope you have a good rest of your day whenever you're listening to this, and a good rest of your week. Thank you all. Goodbye.